You really are in a fine mood today, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> Start the fucking show. <laughs> User error 62. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And Alan is full of cold. So thank you for soldiering on. Just a quick plug up top for the hashtag ask error. If you want to ask us questions about anything, then use that hashtag on Twitter or in Telegram, or you can write to us in various places. Just go to error.show slash contact and yeah, you can get in touch with us there. But let's start off then with the question that I've come up with. How do you balance embracing new tech with planning for its obsolescence? In the last couple of weeks, we've had Stadia come along, Google's streaming service, and MySpace have deleted millions of MP3s by accident. Mm, I don't know about that. And it just got me thinking, it's kind of related to a topic we talked about before, which was how do you balance living in the moment with planning for the future? And obviously this is far less serious because it's just tech stuff, but there is still that balance to be had. You want the kind of new cool services, but then anything that Google does, I'm so skeptical that it's going to hang around that it just makes me not even want to invest in it at all. I feel the same way. I mean, some of their core services I'm okay with and I use on a regular basis. I use Gmail. Um, I use, I have a Google apps for domains or whatever they call it today. Um, on my personal domain. And I also use that for the family's email. So they all have email addresses and we always, we also use it for photo storage, but I, there aren't any other services that Google use that I feel confident buying into. And I'm not sure I would buy into Stadia as well, only because I quite like the gaming platforms I have. Maybe I would. Maybe I'm sat watching a YouTube video and you get the pop-up thing that says, you know, join the game and you're immediately a machine is spun up in the cloud and you can start playing a game carrying on from where that person was. I think I might enjoy that. I've seen some people complain and say that feature looks stupid and, and very orchestrated and not something anyone would want to do. But I sure have seen people on YouTube and I've wanted to press the button and like, you know, I, I think I would enjoy that. But I feel the same as you, Joe. I would feel a bit reticent about signing up for a service like that because if it goes away, you lose access to those things. And when I think about what I already use, I already use uh, Netflix for watching TV and film. And if I stopped paying for Netflix, I would not have access to those TVs and films, but I've watched them all. So what do I care? It doesn't, it doesn't matter that I can't watch whatever Breaking Bad or whatever TV series that I watched on Netflix again. I can't watch it again. Well, I could. I could go to the store and buy a box set of DVDs. And if I stopped subscribing to Spotify, then I would lose immediate access to all those collections of, of music and would that really matter? I'm I'm not a big collector of music, so I, I don't really care. I just listen to it as background noise mostly. So I don't know. I It's weird because I do use some online services and I would be a little bit annoyed if they went away. I would especially be annoyed if Google Photos suddenly died. But other things, mm, not so much. And I try not to use them if I can. I definitely feel like I've experienced this specifically with games already with um, some Nintendo games, specifically the, the Legend of Zelda. Uh, I bought it on the Nintendo 64 and then I got the collector's edition so I could play it on the GameCube when it had the little mini disc for that. And then I bought it again in the virtual console on the Wii. And now there is currently no way for me to play the game on the Switch. And I don't have those old consoles anymore. So 
uh, you know, what, what is really the option in, in that case is you just pirate it and emulate it and feel like, Oh, you know, I, I bought it. So this isn't morally and ethically bad. Like I technically paid for this thing three times already. Right. But there's no good way with this thing just goes away or if it's not supported or becomes obsolete. I don't know if there's a really good way to, to continue to play games specifically. I mean, music, I guess that a new music service just spins up and then seeks to have all the music on it ever. But I don't know. I don't really know what the good answer is for this. I've got a huge library of games in steam and I bought a Wii and I had um, a fairly decent size collection of games on the Wii and I, I, I my Wii was broken or I, I think I might have tried to flash it with some dodgy off-brand firmware or something in the hope that I could use it to play homebrew stuff but now that I've done that I've nuked what was on there so I've lost all the games that I downloaded from the Wii store so I and I can't get them back because the Wii store's gone offline so I mean that's partly my own fault but equally if I if this was a console where you, you know, every game was something you physically bought, then, you know, I could go down the shops and buy secondhand copies of all those games. But because many of them were only available via the online store, it's weird because I have this mixed feelings about this because with Steam, I have hundreds of games in there and I don't feel particularly bad about that. I don't feel particularly, I don't feel like Valve are going to go away anytime soon. And I don't feel like I'm going to lose access to those games. And I know from conversations with people at Valve that internally they feel very strongly that people should be able to carry on playing games that they bought 10 years ago and that you shouldn't break the experience. Unlike consoles where you rev to a new generation of console and that's it, forget all the old games you used to play. It's new games now, buy everything all over again. And I have that attitude for Valve. It's okay. But for consoles it's a bit different um and and i i worry that i would i i i feel concerned about investing in these things and i tell my son not to invest in these things don't buy virtual goods because you can't keep them any longer you know if you anything you bought in like skins you bought in minecraft that's money wasted you might have enjoyed the experience at the time but it's gone and you'll never have that as a physical tangible object and the same thing goes for skins you buy in Fortnite or whatever the next game after Fortnite will be all these virtual goods might give you a short-term bit of fun, but in the long term, there's nothing. You, there's no resale value. You can't go back and look at it. You can't show it to your kids. You can talk about it and have memories of it, and you might have videos of you playing with that, you know, that skin. But it's gone. Those things are now gone. And the same thing could happen with Stadia and those games that you played. They could disappear if Google just decide this is not a profitable venture anymore and just shut the thing down. Yeah, but by that logic, what's the point of buying that pint of beer? Because once you've drunk it, it's disappeared. You piss it out and it's gone forever. <laughs> well, beer is more than just something to enjoy at the time. You know, it provides some sustenance to your human body. And it, and it's part of a whole experience down the pub with some friends. Like, I, I don't think their virtual goods and physical goods are comparable quite like that. Well, yeah, except that surely these skins and everything are just part of the fun of playing the game, and it's a social experience, and it's it's basically like the beer down the pub. If the game is the pub, then the skins are the beer almost. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I, I try and encourage Sam not to spend his pocket money on things that are non-tangible and that he'll, you know, because 
it's not something he can ever say he ever invested in. Like he's never going to get any reward from that other than the, the short term enjoyment of his character momentarily looking like a unicorn or whatever skin it is that day, you know? And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's daft because I've got loads of virtual goods in that I've got a library full of like 400 games in steam and they're all virtual. None of that is physical. I don't have CDs. So maybe I should uh, rethink my strategy there. Yeah. What would you rather him spend his money on? Just hoarding shite? Well, he's, he's considered saving up his money for a newer watch, uh, maybe some, uh, effects pedals for his electric guitar, uh, you know, all kinds of things that, that he could have enjoyment out of for multiple hours that the second he turns his computer off, don't disappear. I thought maybe mentioning a guitar based thing might get you on side there, but maybe not. <laughs> it just got me thinking, I need to come over to your place actually, so I can play that cool SG of his. <laughs> okay hashtag ask error and this is a fairly simple one is there any food you won't eat even in an emergency so dan is there any food you won't eat yeah mushrooms mushrooms are an instant puke for me i don't know i just can't get them down i don't know why wow yeah like literal vomit from i, I can't like stomach through them that's because they are neither animal nor vegetable, probably. And I feel similarly. I have been known when I was really starving and I had a fry up and there was some fried mushrooms. I had a few of them. And I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it was like literal puking, but it was like, I'm not enjoying this, so I'm not going to eat any more of them. But I think if I was really starving and that's all there was, I could probably just about stomach them. I think I'd eat grass or bark first or maybe dirt even. Really? Oh my God. I definitely go for grass first. Even like fried in some like garlic or something? Yeah. Well, if I could fry things in garlic, why wouldn't I fry the grass in the garlic? <laughs> <laughs> Tree bark in garlic. Nice. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Popey? Uh, I think it's an impossible question to answer because I haven't tried everything. So uh, I used to say, uh, I'm not fussy and the only thing I won't eat is celery. Uh, and that held true for a long time. And now I eat celery. I'm okay with it. Um, it was just, I, di I just didn't like the stringiness and I felt it was a bit weird tasting and I didn't really enjoy it. But now I see it as a vehicle for getting sour cream and hummus in my mouth. So that makes it okay. Um, but I think I would have problem if, the vegans won and or the the anti bovine people won and said we can't eat cows anymore you know, for ecological reasons um and you have to get your protein somewhere else and that somewhere else is surprise cockroaches uh then i might have a problem there um but you know the fact that people do eat them and i've seen documentaries of kids at lunchtime you know, giant bowls of fried insects and they get served them up and the kids go up for seconds and they love them and they, they're delicious. And I've seen kids go and find uh, live spiders in holes in the ground and dig them out. And then it's a treat to have, I don't know, the sack at the back of the spider, apparently especially yeah. tasty and the legs are interesting and stuff. You know, it is possible for humans to consume these things if that's the thing that's available to you. Luckily, the co-op is just down the road and available to me <laughs> yeah. is steak and chicken and burgers and sausages and, and, and vegetables and fruit. So I don't have to worry about that problem, but it might come. All right, Dan, you have to choose between spiders and cockroaches and mushrooms oh What's my it to god be? oh wow you're gonna make, <laughs> jesus choice. christ you're gonna make me choose between eating spiders or mushrooms yeah yeah fuck i guess i'll i guess i'll 
try the mushroom. Spider <laughs> sounds pretty gross. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Gun to my head, I'll be like, "Fuck, okay, give me the mushrooms." Now, the funny thing about me is that I'm very fussy. I'll only eat a few things, very, very few things, actually. I don't eat red meat just because I don't really like it. Um, I don't eat tons of stuff. I don't really like tomatoes. Um, I don't really like cheese. There's just loads of stuff that I don't choose to eat. But if I was like literally starving to death, then I'd eat pretty much anything. I don't know about cockroaches and spiders. That's just... Not for I know for some cultures it is food, but it's not for me. So fuck you, I'm not eating that. <laughs> but um, the, but there are some condiments that I wouldn't eat, like mayonnaise. I just what? even what? though I, even though I love greasy things, I love eggs and I love vinegar. Put them together, and you can go and fuck yourself. No thanks. You're missing out, man. Chips dipped in mayonnaise is amazing. No thanks. Ketchup will do me just fine. Wow. How do you make sandwiches? Uh, hummus. All right. Hmm. Uh, that's allowed. Yeah, because I don't, I don't really like butter either, so sandwiches I always put hummus on, and that works really, really well. It's quite expensive, but uh, you get a delicious sandwich with them. One of uh, Sophie's friends came around a little while ago, um, and she, she was, they were making sandwiches in the kitchen, and uh, Sophie, my daughter, said, uh, only a tiny, thin scraping of butter on mine. I don't really like butter. And her friend was like, oh, I'll have all yours then. I love butter. I could just <laughs> cut lumps off and eat it. And I'm like, yeah, me too. And my daughter was retching at the sound of, like, the thought of us just, like, consuming butter on its own. Yum, yum, yum. Yeah. Yeah, my missus will do that. She'll be getting the, the butter, and she keeps it in the fridge to keep it fresh for longer, and, like, chops really big chunks of it and then puts them on the bread, and then she'll just, like, eat a little bit of it and I'm just like properly wretching right? <laughs> how can you possibly eat butter on its own it's so delicious I don't, it's the same with all condiments as well like ketchup right if I get a bit of ketchup on my finger the thought of licking that off makes me wretch it has to be in the right ratio with the chips or whatever it is that you're eating it with and if I get a chip and I dip it in ketchup and there's too much on there and I just get a mouthful oh it's just rank whereas dipped ju- just the right ratio delicious so people who get a portion of chips or french fries if you're american and put the ketchup directly on them oh that is just filth they, those people are just animals you've got to put it on the side and dip the chips in it i feel sorry for you man i really do like the, i i had a friend who his wife was had a real eating problem and i realized like there are eating disorders which make it difficult and people suffer really really badly but she was just um refused to eat anything and the only thing she would eat was just like bare bread and maybe baked beans and it was basically no she had no enjoyment from food at all i think the problem is i really enjoy food as you can tell by my waistline i really enjoy food and i enjoy eating and there's not very much this is which is why it's very hard for me to come up with one when you originally asked what would you not eat because there's nothing that i've eaten in my life that i would not eat again One thing that I would eat in an emergency, so it doesn't count, but one thing that I never, ever eat that will probably shock you, pasta. Huh. What, not spaghetti bolognese, the Great Britain's favourite dish? No, if I was starving, I could eat it, but I would never, ever choose to eat it. Wow. I don't mind noodles, like egg noodles, they're all right, but pasta, it just just tastes like just fucking cardboard. I don't know, it's just rank. You're supposed to have it with something. (laughs) Also, you're supposed to cook it. Mm -hmm. I know, but right, so pasta, what do you generally eat it with? Cheese and tomato stuff. And I don't like cheese, I don't like tomatoes. Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't help. But then again, I'll eat a pizza with tomato stuff on it, so I'm just weird. Yes, yes you are. 
Right, another straightforward question. Why did you start using Linux? Um, so, Dan, this is a pretty open-ended question. Why did you start using Linux? The long and short of it is that I was really into Windows XP mods at the time. And so I was always looking for like, oh, like this is, you know, a thing where you could like add shadows to the windows because they didn't have shadows at the time. And like, you know, dude, they had all these like different launchers and docks and stuff that people were doing at the time. And like, I don't know, just all these little crazy like shell mods you could do for XP. And then uh, I saw someone posted, um, check this out. There's this Linux thing. It's this Corora Linux, and it has this thing called Compiz, and it's like 3D and fire and all this crazy stuff. And so I downloaded it, and I booted up the live CD and was playing with that stuff. And it was like, oh, my God, you can do anything with this. Look at those windows wobbling. Yeah, I mean, it was... So it was, it was not just that, but it was like the realization that like you could really do anything. And, um, playing with installing Gentoo for the first time was, it was an experience of this is not necessarily a product that is built and served that you're trying to modify. Like this is something that you can really create what you want to see from the ground up down to the very last detail. And you, don't have to be stuck with what somebody else envisioned. You can fix all those little niggles and problems and make it the way you want it. Hang on a second. There's a great irony here. So what got you into Linux was being able to change everything about it, and then you made a distro where you can't change a fucking thing. Oh, you can change all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Fair enough. But you have to admit that um, Elementary OS is very much designed to be one thing that is your vision and you think that's how users should use a computer and they obviously have the choice to use it or not or use loads of other distros but it's not designed to be changed very much yeah but i think that's the beauty of the idea of the kind of general linux ecosystem is that if you're not happy with that you can go do something else and i think that's that's kind of the cool part about it is if if you are happy with it you can use it um, the way it is without having to spend a bunch of time, you know, doing this and that. But if you want something different, if you want a different kind of experience or you want to change something, um, you know, you, you can't as of now go make a pull request against some Windows shell component on GitHub, as far as I know. But, uh, if you really care about changing this thing, then there is a path for you to either modify it just for yourself on your computer or submit your changes upstream and get that modification into everybody's computer. Yeah, true. So, Poppy, what got you into it? I first heard about it from a student when I worked at a college near here and I was just a technician. And I think this would have been about 94, 1994. And uh, he was one of the engineering students and he had this giant pile of floppy disks and he said, hey, Alan, you have a look at this. This is going to change the world kind of thing. And I was like, haha, lols. No, it's not. And it was like Slackware or something. Um, and I didn't really take any notice and I didn't try it. I didn't go and download it or anything. I just heard about it. And I think it took another year or so before I had a spare PC, I had like a Pentium 200 and I just bought a new PC that, or a self-build P, P2400 or something like that. And so that, sh- that kind of dates this thing around 95 or something like that. And 
I think I wanted to try it out. I think I'd heard from someone else at work maybe about it and I wanted to try it out. So I, I, um, I got a book and I think it was Coral Linux that was on a CD that was inside the book. And the book was like 800 pages. It was a giant thing. I, for a long time, it was used to prop things up in my, on my desk and stuff. It was huge. And I installed that on the second PC. And then I was like, right, now what? And like, I could SSH into it and I could run VNC and I could see an X cursor and I could run X eyes and X clock and stuff like that. I didn't really use it in anger. I thought it was pretty cool. I could remotely control one computer from another and I could get the, the windows from another computer to appear on this computer screen and stuff like that. It was pretty cool, but I didn't really use it much in anger until a couple of years later. And then I just started getting into that Linux community. They were using it at work. I was working at um, AstraZeneca up in um, Macclesfield. And uh, I think they were using it somewhere. I think they were using Red Hat or something. And uh, I thought, well, I should uh, probably learn a bit more about this. So I installed it on a machine at home. And um, then that was it. I, I was on Fedora, uh, no, Red Hat, sorry, initially. And then... When Red Hat changed to Fedora, I think I switched to Debian and then Ubuntu. But I just, I, I part, partly because of curiosity and partly because I was single at the time, didn't <laughs> have a lot of time on my hands and, you know, wasn't really achieving an awful lot. So oh, let's have a play with that. And I had a spare computer and it just seemed like, well, I've got the spare computer. I might as well stick it on there and see what all this fuss, fuss is about. And that was it. How about you? Well, I, was very poor at the time and i had uh, at the time it was a fairly old p4 3 gigahertz machine with 512 megabytes of ram wow that's how shit that was and um i was running xp on it and i needed to get more performance out of it to do my music making stuff i was making um, electronic music and, and whatnot with it and it was just too slow so i needed to eke out every little bit of performance and so i discovered a thing called nlight which can take a, a Windows ISO, I mean, it, I don't know if it still exists, probably does, but you could take a Windows XP ISO and strip out all of the shit that you don't need. And so you could strip out all of the security stuff, for example, and that would make it way faster. And so I experimented with that. But I was using that and also connecting to the internet and <laughs> buying stuff off eBay and everything. And eventually it dawned on me, hang on, this is probably a terrible idea because I've got no security updates, and it just, I should not be connecting this thing to the internet. And so I thought, well, how do I balance that then between good performance and actual security updates and, well, just general security? And so that's when I discovered Linux. I'd been aware of it for a while. I think um, Mandrake, Mandriver, something like that. My brother had given me four or five CDs of it and said, oh, you should check this out. And I just never bothered. Um, and then I started to investigate the whole Linux thing. And um, I think probably started with Ubuntu and then went all the way down to Slacks uh, and Puppy and everything. And then eventually settled on Ubuntu, and that was with GNOME 2 at the time. And then realized, hmm, GNOME 2 is a bit bloated, actually. I think I'm going to go for something a bit lighter. And so I went for XFCE. And although I've 
tried almost all of the, I was going to say every distro under the sun, but obviously not all of them, but I've tried many, many distros and just keep coming back to Zubuntu, just that Ubuntu base and XFC on top of it just really seems to be the perfect balance for me. And so I got into it for completely practical reasons and then discovered all about the, um, you know, the the freedom aspect and why open source is good. And, uh, you know, open source is good in two ways, isn't it? I mean, you've got the practical aspect that it is just sort of a better way to develop software and also the philosophical side of it and so yeah it was just getting into it from having really shit hardware basically and then my computers have got better and better as the years have gone on i think it's weird how we're all like wildly different ways in which we got you know into into linux and how none of it was I was walking down the street and someone handed me an Ubuntu CD or something like that. Yeah. Or like, you know, I, I heard about it on the radio or, or I heard about it on the TV or something. It's, I don't know. I'm sure our listeners are shouting at their, uh, audio player right now telling us, you know, that's how I learned. That's how I did. Yeah. I wonder how many kids these days, like, learned about it on Mr. Robot and stuff like that. <laughs> Maybe people in another 10 years, 15 years or more will be doing podcasts about Linux and they'll be telling their story and how they went to Og Camp or something or saw it on Mr. Robot. Because I, I don't know, maybe things have changed since we got into it. But it's funny that me and you, Dan, are like almost the same in that it was about modding XP, but it was just for totally different reasons. I was trying to get it as basic and slim as possible and you were just trying to do the opposite. I'll be honest, I think if you if you come back, like in 20 years' time, you come back to now and find out how people got involved in Linux, I think you're more likely to to hear stories of people with Android phones modding their phone and wanting to rebuild Android and stuff like that, and people using Raspberry Pis and learning about how to, you know, apt install something on a Raspberry Pi because that's what they used at school. In the same way that my some of my first interactions with computers at school were BBC Micros. You know, the computer at school is often fairly pivotal in setting the tone for for some people i think you're right but i think another route is the server route for people who realize that they want to get a job in it look into it realize well hang on if i become a sysadmin i can make pretty decent money and all i have to do is learn x y and z to do it and so i think there'll probably be people getting into it that way and they will potentially never even use it on the desktop they'll just get into red hat or whatever they'll get rail certified and then just use putty forever yeah maybe Okay, another hashtag ask error, and it's somewhat related, and that is if you started working at a company and could only choose Mac or Windows, which would be the less painful choice? Now, Dan, if you say Windows, then my head will explode. I haven't used Windows in quite some time, but there is the whole subsystem for Linux thing now, right? Yeah. And I I have seen people saying that they could run like regular applications through the Windows subsystem for Linux now, right? So how far does that go? I mean, have have people tried to run GNOME Shell or anything from the Windows subsystem for Linux on Windows? Is that cheating? Can we do things like that? <laughs> if I could run my regular desktop environment and applications, but like on Windows technically, does that fulfill the requirements? Yeah, I think this is, this question is really based on you know, the IT department at your new job will only provide you a Windows computer or a Mac computer. Which do you choose? And 
you know, if you can install extra stuff on top of that, there are a lot of people who on their Windows machine install Windows subsystem for Linux and use that as a way to get, you know, their command line fix and do stuff quickly that they know how to do in the command line. And similarly on a Mac, people open a terminal and bash is right there. So yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's reasonable. You could use Windows and WSL. Yeah. I feel like if that's the case, that's probably the way to go. But if it's like, here, you get this thing and it's locked down and like you can't really change or add things and you just get to use it the way it is, then I think that the Mac makes more sense because it does have Bash already on it and you can just jump straight into the terminal. And if I'm doing presumably some kind of uh, development job, I don't want to be messing around with whatever Windows command line crap yeah, and you could potentially run VMs. I mean, assuming they're going to give you a powerful enough computer with enough RAM, then you could just install the Linux that you want to use in a VM, full screen it, and just forget whether you're using Windows or a Mac. But I think for me, it would be quite clear I'd go for a Mac because Windows is just, I don't like it at all, really. Um, it depends, of course. If I'm paying for it, then it's Windows. <laughs> if I'm not paying for it, then it's Mac, put it that way. And I think the only reason that I never used a Mac before when I was using Windows was price because I'm just not going to pay that much for similar spec hardware even if it is running a better OS and I think that Mac OS is solid from what I am my limited experience with it um, but yeah for me it's a very straightforward answer Mac I'm afraid what about you Popey then so I have had this experience in the past where I've gone to work as a contractor at organizations and they've said what do you want and i chose a, a windows pc i got a thinkpad and then i shrunk the disc and put ubuntu on it um <laughs> and almost got walked off site for doing it um but it turned out that i was within the rules of the uh, it policy so long as i didn't find the help desk for support and i supported myself and i could use all my daily applications that i needed to to do my job then uh, I was, you know, within the company policy and everything was okay. Um, so I was a bit rebellious there. And I think if it were to come to it again, I think it really depends on what the job was. Um, my, my previous role before Canonical, I was doing SAP type stuff and the applications I had to use were mostly on Windows. I just couldn't get my job done on a Mac very easily because the desktop stuff was all Windows based and it was Microsoft Office based and, and integration with SAP is better on Windows than it is on a Mac. And so, you know, I think it would really depend upon what the job was. But if it was the thing I do now and it was completely agnostic which platform I used, I could choose any and I could get the same job done on either then I think I would probably choose a Mac because I prefer the hardware, which may seem weird as a massive ThinkPad fanboy. Um, uh, but I, th I think I w if somebody else is paying and they're providing the hardware, then yeah, I'll, I'll have a Mac. Thanks very much. Right. So I've got a question for you guys. What is your take on the Fermi paradox? Now, the Fermi paradox kind of ties in with the Drake equation. And the Drake equation basically goes that if you work out the likelihood of various planets being able to support life and the number of planets there are in the universe, there should basically be life, um, you know, other alien life. And the Fermi paradox basically goes, well, where is it? 
why haven't we seen it? And there are various answers to that. Um, I suppose we should get out of the way the obvious answer that, well, they've been visiting us for thousands of years. Look at the pyramids. Who do you think built them and all that? But um, I think we could probably discard that one. Okay. Let's discard that one. How about the, they already existed millions of years ago, billions of miles away, and we couldn't see them anyway because they're so far away and it was so long ago. The whole problem I have with this this whole paradox that, well, if they're out there, we should be able to see them, is that whole arrogance of humanity that they, they should be visible to us. Show yourself. Where are you, you bastards? Come on. Uh, that I don't think is appropriate. I think they may exist a million years in the future from now and just haven't evolved yet because their planet is just not at that stage. Or they may have existed billions of years ago in the past and so far away that uh, we can't possibly see them. And there might be so many of them all in a little club, very, very far away. And we're the odd ones out. We're very far away from them and they can't see us and we can't see them. I think there's plenty of explanations why. I, I would agree. That I, I do think there are plenty of them out there. Uh, definitely, I believe, I want to believe that there are other civilizations out there. But when I say out there, that could mean in the past or in the future, not necessarily right now, like the whole, I can't remember if it was Donald Duck or Bugs Bunny, you're looking through a telescope and what you see through a telescope is another person looking at you through a telescope. I don't think that's what we're ever going to have. I think what, what we might see at some point in our distant future is the remnants of other civilizations elsewhere. I don't think we have the capability to reach out and speak to someone else that uh, at our, in our time uh, right now. I like the explanation that uh, Michio Kaku uses, which is like the idea of, um, you know, you're trudging through the forest and there's this anthill, right? And then just a little bit away from that is construction on this like super highway, right? And if we're the ants in the anthill, like do those ants – notice the highway and if they do can they comprehend the highway and do the builders of the highway really care to try to communicate with the ants and explain to them what it is and like if if there's this race that is potentially billions of years more advanced than we are um, does it even really make sense for us to interact they might be so far advanced from us on an evolutionary scale that they don't even think about us and we can't comprehend them. Right, well, that does make sense. But the argument uh, of the Fermi paradox kind of goes that they should be everywhere. The The universe should be teeming with life. It should be unavoidable for us to not see it. We it, we should just see evidence, at least, whether that's radio signals or whatever. And so, yeah, if they are billions of years in advance of us, and that highway analogy is pretty good, but we, we should see some evidence, surely, that they are there. And once they become spacefaring, and once they manage to go interstellar, they should be just everywhere in the universe, and therefore we should see them. Radio is really inefficient, though, isn't it? Just like broadcast transmission is is pretty primitive and inefficient way to communicate. You'd think that an advanced civilization would be using something like very focused and deliberate and direct because energy conservation would be so important during interstellar space travel, right? I mean, maybe they're shooting like really tight 
gravity waves or using some kind of quantum entanglement that we don't understand in order to communicate. And there's no radio waves because that's silly to try to communicate with radio waves. Right. And it goes back to our arrogance as humans again, that we've only had the capability to uh, send a satellite up into space like 50 years or so. And we've only really understood radio and been able to pick up radio waves for a hundred plus. So why should suddenly within this tight window of a hundred years, suddenly all these aliens appear to us out of nowhere that we never saw before? I, I don't buy it that, and I, and I still think it's the arrogance of humanity that they should show themselves right now. I think. Maybe in a hundred years when our technology is sufficiently advanced that we can parallelize our ability to scan the sky, you know, and see every square centimeter of the sky at once and in parallel digest the radio waves and be able to interpret them. Maybe if we could do that. But right now we're scanning a very small area of the sky piece by piece and looking for these signals. I think in a, in, in some years time, maybe we'll have the capability to be able to dynamically do that like super fast and super easily and we'll just go yeah there they are there's another one there and there's another one there and we'll spot them straight away i don't i don't feel like we have to see them right now i think i'm fine with being dead and 50 years after i'm dead somebody else discovering this i'm fine with that so joe i'm guessing that you're leaning a little bit more towards the idea of a great filter yes exactly so i think that Civilizations simply don't last long enough to become properly spacefaring. Once they take those first few baby steps to their nearest moon or planet or whatever, then the technology that they develop to do that ends up killing them. Um, and you know, once you become sufficiently technologically advanced, in order to win that evolutionary arms race to become intelligent enough to do that, and then for your society to progress to that point, I just don't think that it sort of lends itself to longevity. You sound like the people who thought that Stevenson's rocket doing 70 miles an hour would kill people. Like, it sounds ludicrous that that we can't possibly handle the technology that that we're going to create in, in the future. I, I, again, I still think that's arrogance of humanity, that, oh, well, these stupid bastards in the future who create interstellar space travel and they make these magic rockets that go at near, like, 0.9 light speed, they're like, fucking idiots, going to kill themselves. Like, no, we've, ma- we've managed to cre- get as far as we have. I'm pretty sure we can carry on. I think we'll be all right. What if we already created the technology to kill ourselves and it's petrol? <laughs> I think you mean gasoline, Dan. Yeah, gasoline. <laughs> yeah. What, what if or what if um, biotech ends up creating some virus that wipes us all out or nuclear weapons? Right. Or it's the nanobots or any other storyline from Star Trek in the last 20 years. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Could be any one of those. Yeah, exactly. I ha- I'm slightly more optimistic. I think we'll cope. I think we'll be all right. Um, yeah, I agree that the way that we're um, taking all the resources out of the earth is not sustainable, uh, not tenable, and we'll need to look for other ways in which to uh, build structures and manufacture goods in the future. Um, and we should be doing that now. We should have been doing that 20, 30, 50 years ago, totally, but we're not. We are where we are, and we need to do better in the future, and I think we will. No, I think they all just blew themselves up. 
and we're never going to meet them. Surely you'd see them. Like, if they all blew themselves up, there was, there'd be remnants somehow. There'd be satellites spinning around their, their planets, or there'd be moon bases on their moons, or there'd be, there'd be some remnant somehow of, like, their equivalent of Voyager 2 just go screaming past us, and we'd be like, whoa! Well, there are people who think that that happened recently. Yes, there are people who think the world, the world is flat. All around the globe, yes. Yes.